praying to the Father in preparation for His coming hour that has finally come. And up to this point, we have seen Jesus doing ministry after ministry, meeting so many people, making His name known. Miracles after miracles, saying after sayings, that the, that the hour Jesus has always spoke of has finally come. So He dismisses Himself to be alone, and He goes off and prays. And this prayer is pretty neat. It's neat that it's not a freestanding prayer. What I mean by that is this. It's connected. It is connected by the themes and the link words with all the previous prayers and with all the other things that have been said. For example, chapters 1 through chapter 16. And in some respects, we can say this prayer is a summary of the entire fourth gospel. And perhaps, and perhaps, we can also say this prayer is the ultimate prayer, is the ultimate representative of all the other famous prayers in the Bible. For example, Moses, when he prayed up in Mount Sinai, all the prayers we found, we find in Psalms through David and other Psalters, Ephesians 1 and 3, Paul's prayers, and even including the Lord's Prayer. And you know what? All these prayers, all these are prayers, all these famous prayers recorded in Scripture have two things in common. One, that they're prayed under great duress. They're prayed under great pressure. And two, the prayers spend a lot of time asking God to reveal himself, to reveal his power, to reveal his glory, and to reveal his splendor. And so what I want to focus on today in this big passage is on a particular word. And that word, that word is glory. Because in different forms, it shows up about eight different times. And before I give you the three points of today, let me just define glory for you a little bit. The Hebrew equivalent for glory is kavod, which means weight. Whatever is glorious to us what is what weighs the heaviest upon us. Glory is something that can be given and when we give glory to something, that means that something is the very thing that we worship, is the very thing that we give glory to, is the very thing that is very important for us. Whatever we give glory to is our chief worship. It tends to serve as the primary organizing principle that our entire life follows. Glory can be given, but it can also be received. And Jesus talks about this in verse 22 where he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, you and me. That they may be one, even as we are one. So today I'd like to focus on glory as well as unity, as oneness. Because that's sort of the, the, sub, the sub theme. Here are the three points. The glory we crave. The glory of God. And the glory from God. The, glo the glory we crave. You see, the giving and receiving of glory, giving and receiving affirmation, is central to the life of the Trinity. And when I say Trinity, I mean God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Jesus describes what looks like this, this divine love fest. Where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are giving and receiving praise. They're giving glory to each other. Jesus says this, I brought you glory on earth, finishing the work you gave me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So what Jesus is describing here is like a dance. Okay? It's very similar to what you hear in a, in a romance story. Okay? You've got two people who are so smitten with each other, who are so in love and filled with admiration and adoration with one another, that it's just this back and forth symphony of praise. Oh. <laughs> so that's what's happening. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because that's what's happening in the life of the Trinity. <laughs> And what's been happening with all eternity past and what's happening with all eternity future. The happiness of God is completed when the God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are praising one another. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so if you ever find yourself asking why we as human beings crave so much, why we long for so much adoration and praise, why we have an appetite for that, this is the reason. It's because we are made in the image of God whose nature and essence is to give praise and to receive it. Now this starts in early childhood, if you think about it. If you ever had a child, have a child, or around many children... What are they doing? They're constantly asking you, watch me. Watch me do this. Watch me do that. Watch me do a somersault. Watch me climb the stairs. Watch me eat. Watch me read a book quietly. Watch me jump off the couch. Watch me, watch me, watch me. And what they're asking, you know what they're asking is, is the very thing that we, for the, the very same reason we ask when we want to be adored, when we want to be praised. They want you to cheer them on. They want you to praise them. They want you to say, good job. And that doesn't go away, does it? That longing and desire for affirmation and applause never goes away. In fact, it's arguable that it only gets worse as we get older. <laughs> like we get more sophisticated in how we go about doing it. And to be quite honest, we ourselves don't know we're doing it. Just ask yourself, the question, how much of your time, how much of your thoughts, how much of your efforts go towards that, go towards wanting to be praised, wanting to be blessed? If we're honest with ourselves, quite a lot. Now, hold on. This isn't all bad. This isn't all just neediness. That desire for longing of neediness and affirmation for praise, for applause, is given to you as an image bearer of God. It actually comes from good roots. This is a very good thing. It's an affirmation that you're made to be like God. We are little Christs, are we not? Just in its flawed form. The comedian, Tom Arnold, quite a few years back, maybe not too long ago, he wrote a book called, the, he wrote a book called How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. <laughs> And um, as someone was interviewing him about the book, they asked why he wrote it. And it was this was his reply. Well, it's very simple. I'm a very broken man. And I felt like I needed to have something out there so that people will say they like me. Or maybe you're a tennis fan. Chris Everett, if you remember who she is. 
She's the professional, or was the professional tennis player, former one, number one tennis player in the world. And during this interview, she was sharing how much of a meltdown she had when she had to call it quits. She spent so many years duking it out with the best of the best all around the world. So when she, called, when she had to retire, this is, what she had to, this is what she said to the interviewer. I had no idea who I was without tennis. Winning was essential for me. It was like a drug. Winning made me feel pretty. It made me feel pretty. That, that's a glory thing. That is the image of God crying out for applause and praise. Jesus says here in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, church, you are made. You were made to be glorified because you are made in the image of God. You're built for the dance. You're built to be brought in and swept into this Trinitarian love, this, this love fest. You're built for that. But we all know this desire for praise can be easily distorted and corrupted to the point where it diminishes us instead of building us up. This, 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 desire, this desire, this is a dominant theme in the New Testament. This isn't just a theme in this prayer. I mean, let's look at Apostle Paul, right? Apostle Paul is constantly riding to bickering parties who are offending each other, hurting each other's feelings, withdrawing from one another, telling how important it is to be one. Telling them how important it is that if you really believe the gospel, if you really believe the gospel, then your heart would pant and cry out for reconciliation. It would cry out for unity. It would be crying out for oneness. D.A. Carson, a well-known theologian, scholar, pastor um, among, among the pastor circle. And this is what he writes about Christians. I think this is perfect. It's genius. Christians are a strange bunch because they are a band of enemies. People who don't understand each other. People from different backgrounds, different cultures, and different ethnicities. Different political points of views. Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. In fact, Jesus says, this is how my glory will be shown. This is how my glory will be revealed to the world. This is how the world will know that you are one who belongs in a community that belongs to the glorious one. That you're willing to live with the mess of your differences, that you're willing to engage them, you're willing to forgive one another instead of exploiting one another. You're willing to move toward one another instead of away from one another. Be one, and the world will look at this and they will say, wow, now that's different. Because there's a community of people who are so different from one another, and yet for the purpose that is beyond them, that is outside, that is higher than themselves, they are united and they are one. That, to me, is a glorious thing, and I want to be a part of that. But what happens, church? What happens when we miss that message? that Jesus and Apostle Paul and the whole Bible attest to. Pride. Which is the very thing, which is the very thing that caused humanity to fall. Francis Schaeffer, a well-known philosopher, theologian, scholar, um, especially from the background that I come from in the seminary that, that I graduated in, was interpreting this one phrase called, uh, this one phrase, vain glory, 
which he came across in Philippians 2, which it says, Please be careful not to be caught up with selfish ambition and vain glory, because both are community killers. This word vainglory is essentially a pride complex that flows from deep insecurity. It's acting really big because in the inside we feel really, really small. Schaefer described vainglory this way. If you are caught up in vainglory, you will experience other people's demise and suffering as a positive reflection on yourself. And you will also experience other people's success as a negative reflection on yourself. So basically what that's saying is we have this drive, we have this longing to always be one up. We're always, we have this drive to justify our weaknesses and make ourselves feel better. Why do we have to do that? Why do we have to be always one up on one another? Why is it so important for us to be first? Why does it matter? A rival spirit comes at a very great cost. Church, let me remind you, the craving for glory is a very, very good thing. It comes from a good place, the right place. At the same time, it can be corrupted. But there is a way to prevent it from being corrupted. And that brings me to the second point, the glory of God. The only way to taste glory in a healthy way the only way to be swept up into the glory Jesus is praying us into is to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them elsewhere. Elsewhere, The first commandment, the great commandment, love God and, and love your neighbor, means to get your eyes to look outside of yourself. And you then, and only then, will you begin to taste glory the way it was meant to be tasted. Are you familiar with the, the Greek mythology Narcissus? Let me tell you a brief story about him or his, his mythology. Narcissus was a hunter, a soldier, very handsome man, and he was known for his beauty. One day, the goddess Nemesis leads him to a pond. Okay? By the way, Nemesis means to give what is due. Okay? So as Narcissus leans over to look into the pond, he notices his own image. He notices his own image being reflected back at him. He was so taken back with his own image that he just kept looking and looking and looking. He couldn't take his eyes off of himself. And the longer he looked, the smaller he became. And the less he was able to love, and he eventually drowned. So the antidote to vainglory, the antidote to a rival spirit, Right? Our competitive nature and always needing to be first. The antidote to those things is to behold the central point of glory, which is God himself. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see, to, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The word for see, okay, is from a Greek word, theoreto, which means to observe with sustained attention, to gaze intensely, to not look away. So the degree to which we are able to fix our eyes on Jesus is to the degree to which our souls will be healed and satisfied and liberated to love. A lot of people, 
a lot of people even ask, okay, well, isn't this narcissistic of God to command that we glorify him, that we fix our eyes on him, that we, that we never take our gaze off of him to worship him? And the simple answer to that question is we serve a very unique God. God is a very unique being. And that God is the only being in the universe for whom the command to gaze at him, to fix our eyes on him, to behold his splendor and celebrate him is the most loving command that we could ever, ever receive. You see, church, that command is so much more for you and me than it is for him. You see, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our praises. He doesn't need us to glorify him. He was perfectly fine even before the world began, even before we came into existence. Existence. God is not needy, but we are. And that's why we need to fix our eyes on him. And King David says this quite well, expresses this quite well in Psalm 27. One thing that I would ask and I would seek, that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord and behold him. To fix my eyes on him with sustained attention. You see, church, we are created to be swept away with magnificence and splendor. And there's a reason why. For example, you hear a brilliant piece of music. You behold an artistic masterpiece. You come across a beautiful panoramic view of mountaintops, of the ocean, of the valleys. Or you even, be, you even witness the birth of a child. There is something in you that testifies that the human soul is made for something much, much bigger than itself. That we're made for splendor. That we're made for splendor and nothing else. One commentator puts it this way. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is beholding the self. We are made to know and treasure God above all things. And then we trade that treasure for images, everything when we trade the, the treasure for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of our solar system, of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in its proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place. At the center. So the key, church, the key to experiencing and tasting the glory that Jesus is seeking to pray us into, the key is to stop seeking glory directly. Let me say that again. The key is to stop seeking directly glory directly. That's huge. Can you get your mind around that? But instead, to receive it, to receive it as a reflection of the glory of God shining off of you, as you gaze upon him. That account of Moses, right? When he went up and prayed for God to reveal his glory. And God answers that, that prayer not by showing him his face. Because no human being can bear that. But instead, by passing by and showing Moses back. It says that Moses came down the mountain. And the people were so stricken by the brightness of Moses. That they told him to cover himself up. All meaningful glory. The only kind of glory that will not destroy you and drive you into the ground and reduce you and make you less human is derivative 
glory. It's the glory that shines off of you as it comes to you from another source. The moon. The moon is the perfect example. Because the moon is the light that gives... The moon is the lesser light that gives... (laughs) The moon is the lesser light that lights up the night. But the moon itself has no power. It has no resource to create light or heat. All of the moon's light is derivative as the light of the sun bounces off and gives light into the night. And so the best way to become like Jesus, in other words, is to be with him. The closer you are to Jesus, the further you are from self-destruction. The closer you are to God, the more of his glory will be reflected off of you. And this is the kind of glory that you're not pursuing or seeking directly. It's the kind of glory that bounces off of you because you are with Christ. The glory of God is the cure to narcissistic self-destruction. Which brings us lastly to the third point. The glory from God. The glory from God is the glory that God passes on to us. He doesn't just share it within the Trinity, but he passes it on to us. And we see that in verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The glory that comes from God is like this. As we look at him, through whatever means God has given, whether it's through singing worship on a Sunday morning, whether it's fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters, whether it's meeting him in your prayer, whether it's just hanging out, whatever that may be, any possible way we can fix our eyes or our hearts or minds on Jesus and his glory and the beauty and the triune God, we begin to recognize that true glory, the glory that comes back to us from God, is not the glory we have to labor for. We don't. Instead, it's the glory that enters into, like a newborn, that enters into the world, that enters into a family. It's very passive. It's a gift. That newborn, that newborn is given a name right away. And that newborn is embraced and held and affirmed and praised and loved. That newborn is served from the moment by the virtue of the fact that somebody else gave them birth. And that's what's happening in this prayer this morning. The glory of God comes to us. The glory we crave for ourselves comes to us in the form of love. What is love? Here's a, here's a letter that I wrote, and I, sort of, I, I modified it just for today. It's, it's a letter dif- differentiating between crush and love. Okay? A crush is when you think your man is as sexy as George Clooney, as smart as Albert Einstein, as funny as Jim Carrey, as, left, as athletic as Wayne Gretzky, and well-respected as C.S. Lewis. Love, on the other hand, is when you realize that he's as sexy as Albert Einstein, as funny as C.S. Lewis, as athletic as Jim Carrey, and nothing like George Clooney, but you'll take them anyway. This is the gospel, church. Jesus comes to us not when we're at our best, most athletic, most handsome, or most beautiful, looking moments, but he comes to us when we're at our worst, 
when we're running the other way, when rejecting his glory because we're so in the pursuit of our own. And he doesn't just love us anyway. He loves us deeply with adoration. In Revelations chapter 21, one of the very last chapters of the Bible, there are two themes going on. One theme is the glory of God. It says the glory of God is so bright that there is no need for the sun anymore. The Bible describes heaven as having no sunshine because the brightness and the splendor of glory of God will light up the place. And the second thing it talks about is about a bride. It's a bride that, it's a bride that comes down from heaven, beautifully addressed, beautifully dressed and adorned for a husband. You know, this, this wedding metaphor, this, this, this marriage metaphor, it's all over the Bible, right? You see it in Song of Solomon, you see it in Ephesians 5, you go all the way back to the creation account, and there is Adam, the head of humanity, and God creates Eve. And God does his best work while Adam is in deep, deep sleep. God creates Eve, Adam wakes up, and he immediately sees her. He beholds her, gazes at her, and creates history's first humanity's art form, humanity art form. Poetry. And then he sings it. Flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones, I, fi- I finally found myself in finding her. And so now we have the second Adam, Jesus Christ shining in all of his radiance and glory, ready to receive the bride, you and me, beautifully dressed for him at the end of history. You know what's so striking, to me at least, about this wedding metaphor, which is an echo of John 17, where it's all about God sharing glory with us? Think about weddings you've been to or that you plan to go to. What is the climactic moment everybody is waiting for? Interestingly enough, it's very symbolic. It very much looks into the future that God is describing in Revelations 21. The climactic moment is when the eyes go off of the groom and goes on to the bride. Interestingly, those doors open. And that's the moment everyone stands. When the bride is in all her glory, in all her radiance, and beauty comes down to meet her husband. Do you realize what that symbolizes? That symbolizes the truth that in some way, shape, or form, Jesus donates his splendor, his magnificence to you. And in addition to saying, all eyes on me, the bridegroom, he's also saying, all eyes on her, the bride, you and me, my bride, my beauty, the one with whom I am well pleased, and the one whom is my deepest delight, the one that I cherish and adore, the striking thing, the eyes of God, if you put your trust in him, he already sees you this way. So church, let me ask you this as I I close. What practical difference would it make for us if we not only discovered but we actually began to believe deeply that God does not simply love us anyway, but he enjoys us deeply through Christ. Can you get your heart around that? 
What difference would that make in our lives? What kind of impact or effect would it have on our joy? What kind of impact would it have on our ability to forgive and give people the benefit of the doubt? What kind of impact would it have on our character, on our ability to love, our ability to stop staring at ourselves in the pond and instead to start gazing at God and others and contributing our glory to their flourishing? How is this possible? How is this possible for Jesus, the perfect and flawless bridegroom, to clothe what the Bible refers to as a prostitute, as an unfaithful wife, which, by the way, is all of us? In all of the splendor, and rejoice over her. To rejoice over us. The secret is in verse 5, when Jesus says, for, And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Had. The glory I had. Past tense. You know, Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus, when he took on human form and lived a voluntary life of humiliation, Jesus, born of a virgin, (laughs) spent his first night in an outdoor pigsty, spent a good part of his adult life homeless, despised and rejected by men, non-credentialed, came out of an obscure hick town called Nazareth, who died in shame. Glorify them with the glory that I had. I set aside my glory so that you could pick it back up and put it on them. In verse 1, Jesus says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Every time Jesus refers to the hour, he's talking about his death. Church, the day is coming when he will set his glory in the ultimate sense so that we can be clothed with it so that we get entry into the dance because on the cross, Jesus was excommunicated from the dance of the Trinity. Some mysterious way, we gain glory because Jesus voluntarily gave up his. And this being true, what in the world could stop us from taking our gaze off of ourselves and fixing our gaze on his dying love? Let's pray. Our Father, give our hearts the grace we desperately need to take our gaze off of ourselves and to fix our gaze on you. Father, would you receive your glory? Would you continue to show us how you beautifully and magnificently share your glory back and forth between the Trinity And then you invite us into the dance through faith in Christ. And as we witness you sharing glory, would we experience your glory? And in that experience, your joy. And this we pray in Jesus' almighty name. Amen.